Okay, good morning. Good morning. Can you hear me? I'm, I'm Mike Sag. I'm from UAB in Birmingham, and I'm very happy to co-chair this along with Dr. Susanna Nagy from Duke University. Um, this is one in a series of uh, ISUSA hepatitis C updates. And uh, how many of you all been to one of these before uh, for hepatitis C? Good. So a lot of return uh, offenders and some new folks. That's great. Um, I will say that as I look at today's agenda, I think we've really got this down now. I mean, when you start a new series up, it takes a little while to kind of figure out what works and what doesn't work. But I think the format that we have today with the agenda that we have is going to be pretty comprehensive and will allow us to really dig into uh, issues that are emerging in hepatitis C therapy, how we can use the drugs that are available today, and uh, sort of for those of you who haven't done a lot in hepatitis C yet, don't sweat that. We're, the, the opening talk I'm going to give will sort of be, form a foundation for you that uh, will take off. And for the rest of you who have done this for a while, it'll just be a brief review, and um, I hopefully won't bore you too much. But I think the, the agenda really fits well for what I think uh, folks want to see after we've done this for a while. So... Um, the title is Hep Management of Hepatitis C, Virus in the New Era, Small Molecules, Big Changes. So uh, I've already mentioned Dr. Nagy and myself. Um, so what's new about this year? Um, we're going to have uh, more electronic assessment, and that's really important uh, for this new CME rules and for also making sure that we're following what's, what's going to be working for you. So... When you go to the uh, ISUSA website, uh, you can register. Once you've registered, that stays good for uh, from now on. And you'll get a link to your evaluation, and this is really important uh, for you to be able to claim your CME credit. Um, if you don't see this, you'd be looking for it, just check your junk mail. Sometimes it gets shoved off into there, but it, it shouldn't. Um, you have about 30 days to claim the activity, and that will give you um, the final green light for your certificate. Uh, so that's, that's very important. So ISUSA, I think a lot of you know, is an organization. Um, it's a 501c3 out of San Francisco that's solely dedicated for education. And uh, to my knowledge, there are no um, political uh, sons or daughters of candidates who are receiving funding from this site. And as far as I know also, we haven't built any portraits, but maybe that'll change. The course has been approved for up to 6.25 uh, CME uh, physician credits from the AMA, uh, or ACCME, uh, 6.25 nursing contacts. And for some reason, for the pharmacist, um, you get uh, one-tenth of this. Uh, that means you have to do 10 more of these for everyone that everybody else does. Uh, we have uh, financial support uh, in the form of unrestricted educational grants from these uh, companies. And I think it's important to realize that when we say unrestricted, that's true. It's a, it's a block grant that comes in, and then we're totally free to deal with content as we see fit. That includes both the organizers and the speakers. So that, in other words, the IES USA is the sponsor of the event, and these are the folks who are helping with funding in addition to your registration fees. Every talk will have a disclosure. You'll also see it in the e-syllabus book. Um, and we're going to have um, 
by definition, this is a fast-moving field, so there's going to be a lot of cutting-edge information. We're going to try to um, point out whenever we're talking about something that's on the horizon. But to be honest, in this particular set of talks, it's going to be mostly about the drugs that are already approved and on the market. Frankly, because a lot of them are working so well, there are some new ones coming along, but um, we, will, we will point those out. And then just sort of the nursery school rules about treating others like you want yourself to be treated. Uh, turn off your cell phones or at least put them on uh, stun so that you don't have a ring in the middle of the talks. Uh, if you do get a phone call, if you are busy and have practices and whatnot, uh, just kind of gently walk out, and then you can uh, uh, talk out there. Uh, during the breaks and whatnot, keep the doors uh, uncongested if you can, as well as moving private conversations outside, and uh, saving chairs isn't an issue. So let's, let's see who's here. This is like the opening line of Hamlet. Remember that? Uh, the two guard, the guards on the bridge, and you hear the rattling chains of Hamlet's father's ghost. And the opening line is he turns, if they, do, if they stage it right to the audience, and he goes, who's there? And it's great because really what they're saying is who's in the audience tonight for this performance. I thought it was you know, just the best line I think Shakespeare ever wrote. All right, so go ahead and vote. Whoops, too quick. Let's try it again. Can I do it again? Whoops. All right. Don't save chairs. And, yeah, here we go. So one more time. Uh, I think I blew it. All right. Uh, should I, can we just skip it? Or you, is it important that we get it? It's important that we get it. All right. So two muffins are sitting in an oven. One muffin says to the other, boy, it's getting hot in here. The other one goes, ah, a talking muffin. Okay, so uh, let's see. It's about the only clean joke I know, and it's not, it's not very good. Are we good? Ah. Okay, here we go, I think. Yes. Peaceful. Opera. There we go. So, uh, nice split of uh, uh, a lot of pharmacists. That's good because you guys help us out, especially with drug-drug interactions every day. Let's see what's next. Um, What would you say your primary specialty is? Kind of where you practice if you're a pharmacist. Okay, most are working in the realm of ID. What's the setting of your current work? Okay, mixture between community-based clinics and hospital-based clinics. And so um, newer clinicians entering the HCV field, uh, we just asked the question, uh, how many of patients do you currently manage? And um, I guess if you are uh, a pharmacist, your answer is going to probably be two unless you count the people you counsel, but I guess this is self-explanatory. 
This reminds me of a line from a Groucho Marx movie when Chico says, this is an original composition by Victor Herbert. Wow. What a spread. That's great. Impressive. Okay, great. And then finally, just rate how you would rate your own personal experience, how you feel right now if you were going to describe yourself to yourself. Nice spread of experience and expertise. Okay, here we go. So I'm going to kick off with the first talk, and it's going to be a whoops. It's going to be a very rapid um, review of um, of the field and where we are. It's a test to see how well I can navigate. Yes, I want to save and. Whoops. Yeah, you may want to grab that for me. Am I in the right place? Ah. Uh, okay, got it. Hmm. Great. Okay, we're ready. So, if we can transition. Thank. Whoops. Beautiful. So this one's kind of fast in your seatbelts because I'm going to go fast. Um, we're going to talk about the revolution of hepatitis C drugs, and I'm going to try to get over here so I'm not standing in your way. So these are the uh, disclosures that I have. It's mostly receiving research grants to our institution from several companies, and then I've served over the last couple of years intermittently as a, a scientific advisor for BMS, Gilead, Merck, and Teva. So today we're going to talk, this lecture is going to go through the genotypes, uh, the staging, although uh, Dr. Sherman in the next lecture is going to go over more details about that, and then the emerging treatment landscape. So let's go with a couple questions to start off. Which test do you feel most accurately stages liver fibrosis? Go ahead and vote. Okay, 62% say liver biopsy, and that is the technically correct answer, although we're trying to use, avoid that more and more. Um, approximately what percentage of persons with chronic hepatitis C will develop cirrhosis over 30 years? This was one of the pretest questions. Actually, that majority got this incorrect. Uh, it's really about 20 to 50 percent. We'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. And then which of the genotypes is the most common in the United States? I am not throwing away my shot. All right. It's back. Just like my country, I'm 
I went to King's College. I developed a lot of knowledge. Okay. <laughs> Don't get me started. All right, so genotype one. Patsy Barron's here from our clinic, and she knows that I run around during clinic, and I'm seeing different lines from Hamilton, usually uh, every other patient. Okay, here we go. So these are the objectives, and we're going to start with epidemiology. What I think is kind of cool about the whole field of hepatitis C is that it's relatively new. And specifically, um, we didn't even have a name for hepatitis C until around 1989. And it was called non-A, non-B hepatitis. And those of you who are in the room who have gray hair or, or otherwise would have gray hair, but for Clairol, um, <laughs> you would recognize this as, as non-A, non-B hepatitis. And so what happened is, is that over time, um, these... Um, Developments happened. I think the biggest thing that really came along was the the replicase, a replicon assay, and that allowed the DAAs, the direct acting agents, to be developed, and that the small molecules. And I think also what was done in HIV contributed enormously to what happened with hepatitis C. Small drugs. Um, small molecules of different classes, and you'll hear that they're very similar. We started off treating with interferon back in the day. Uh, it became uh, the mainstay, but the effectiveness was not that great, and we'll talk about that in a second. But over the last five to seven years, the direct acting agents have come along, and that's really revolutionized things. Worldwide, 170 million people infected in the United States. It's about 3 to 4 million um, Egypt, about 15% or a little bit more of their population is affected. And when you look uh, at the genotypes, as you all answered correctly, uh, the primary genotype in the United States is, is genotype 1, and it's split between 1A and 1B. In the interferon era, you could remember A is awful and B is better as far as response to therapy. So that's one way to remember. And it's still kind of true with the DAAs. It's just the genotype 1A is responding to most therapies when they're selected carefully and appropriately uh, up to 98% or even higher if, you, if the patient takes the medicine, et cetera. A cascade, imagine that. Uh, those of you who work in HIV recognize this, that the majority of people with hepatitis C in the United States don't know their status unless they get tested. Now, the CDC years ago uh, focused on those born like me between 1945 and 1965. I was born in 1955, so I'm right in the heart of the, you know, the bell-shaped curve of the, of the birth cohort. And so what that means is that those are the folks who we've really focused on. But I'll tell you that in our emergency room at UAB, we've been testing everyone who didn't know their status. And what we've discovered is that for sure there are people in the birth cohort uh, of up to around 12% who are walking in the door. But among those between 20 and 29, there's another spike. And those, are, and those are typically people that have had exposure through intravenous drugs, but they exist. And so my personal view is we should test everyone, and that way we, we won't miss anyone. And then getting people into care and getting them treated and getting us what's called an SCR, sustained virologic response, or cure, is, is, a, is a real aspirational goal right now. And some of the barriers to getting there, in addition to everything we have with HIV, is that the cost of therapy is quite high and the ability of payers to uh, buy into this literally has been difficult and there is no Ryan White program. So that makes it even more difficult. For those who are co-infected, we're okay. 
because then we can get the medicines. But if they don't have, if they're mono-infected, no Ryan White program. Natural history, this is what we were talking about in the pre-question. Someone gets exposed and infected, and a number of people just resolve. The immune system clears it out, cures themselves. But for those who are chronically infected, which is depending on the situation, about 80 to 85%, a lot of them will remain stable, but a 20% will progress to cirrhosis. And this is over a period of about 20 years. If you follow out a little longer, that number can creep up to almost 50% if you follow longer. And if the person's drinking alcohol or doing other things that are going to accelerate liver fibrosis, that will happen not only in, in higher prevalence, but also faster. Um, these are the things up here in this part, co-infection with HIV, co-infection with hepatitis B, alcohol, and people that have uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Now, once someone gets cirrhosis, it can progress slowly, or it can progress on to end-stage liver disease, and that's about 6% per year. But anybody with cirrhosis can go on to develop hepatocellular carcinoma. When any of these things start to happen without curing the hepatitis C, um, they will go on and either die or require a liver transplant. Um, and that's what Dr. Sherman will talk to us a lot more about. We're about right here um, on these curves, so that since it takes about 20 to 30 years for development of symptoms, if most people got infected sometime in the 1970s or 80s, uh, among the birth cohort, we're just starting to see these curves spike. And so the DAA revolution certainly could have come earlier, but the fact that it's here now hopefully will prevent um, this progression of, of uh, both deaths and, and uh, uh, advanced liver disease over time. Dr. Sherman is going to spend a lot of time in his talk on staging. I uh, will just go over that. There's a number of different ways that we can stage, and it's very important in selecting the medications that we know, in particular whether somebody is, has cirrhosis or not, because the treatments are different and what we do is different, both in terms of which drugs we might choose in a given genotype situation, but also how long we might treat. And the other factor would be uh, whether or not they've received treatment in the past um, and what their, co what their other medications are. So that's kind of the equation that we have to plug everyone into and come up with a determination of which drugs to use to cure. This is, uh, I think, it's becoming the gold standard if you can afford it and have access to it. Uh, this is the FibroScan machine or transient elastography. Dr. Sherman will tell you a little bit more about that, but if you're do you basically put a transducer up next to the uh, mid uh, the mid axillary line of the patient, uh, you hit the little button right here, and it sends a shock wave into the liver that's followed by a detection wave. And this is a beautiful result here, where you see kind of a linear, uh, very clean picture of. Uh, of, of the speed of the wave. And basically think about it this way. A normal liver is a little bit like a sponge and it absorbs stuff kind of well. So the speed of the shock wave is slow relative to if the thing's fibrosed and the liver's hard, then it's faster. So you're really looking at that speed and then the computer translates that into the relative stiffness of the liver and you get a out readout in terms of kilopascals, the relative stiffness or elasticity of the liver. Normal livers are somewhere in the range of 2 to 
to four or five. When it gets above 12 and a half in general, that's consistent with cirrhosis. And you can get them as, you know, the results as high as 50 or so. Um, but mostly when people have cirrhosis, uh, it will be uh, pretty obvious. It's not like a subtle thing. How do we treat? Well, we, just like HIV, there's a genome that we now know, and that from that genome and their gene products, we develop small molecules that can inhibit. The life cycle of hepatitis C, I don't think you need to memorize, except to just kind of know that as a virus enters and goes through all of its maturation and production processes, <clears throat> there are different spots where the uh, drugs can work. This is where the so-called protease NS34A protease inhibitors work. Here's where the polymerase enzymes work. Um, and then the NS5A inhibitors work in a couple different places, although it's not a thousand percent sure exactly what these drugs do. They're, they certainly do, they certainly are inhibiting a process that's very important for the virus. The real, I think, take-home point of this slide, especially for those of you, and I'm sure almost every one of you has worked with, with HIV, is the mid biggest difference between hepatitis C and HIV is that there's no intranuclear stage. Therefore, we can cure. Therefore, we can cure. So the thing that's keeping us from curing HIV patients is that proviral state of the, of, the ho of the viral genome being in the host nucleus. That doesn't happen here. Everything else about hepatitis C is extraordinarily similar. Uh, the virus, um, HIV, 1 to 10 billion viruses a day. Hepatitis C, 100 billion to a trillion viruses produced a day. Very rapid turnover, a lot of genetic variation because of errors in transcription as a virus reproduces. The swarm of viruses, the so-called quasi-species, the possibility of development resistance that Dr. Wiles will talk about in his lecture. All of that comes together, and I think it's almost um, humorous uh, when you look at the actual names of the drugs, protease inhibitors, a nucleoside or nucleotide inhibitors and non-nucleoside inhibitors. The only thing different is that we don't have an HIV, a so-called NS5A inhibitor. And here we are. This is the genome. The other commonality is that HIV is about 9 to 9.5 kilobases long. So is this virus, 9.6 kilobases long. Here's the uh, reading frames. I mentioned the NS34A uh, uh, right in here, and that's where... Protease inhibitors work. This is NS5A, or those inhibitors, and then the nucleoside or nucleotide inhibitors and the non-nucleoside inhibitors work on this NS5B portion. And just like with HIV, you, can, you can, uh, concoct a regimen by throwing one from column A and one from column B sort of thing. This is a summary of all the drugs that are on the market and what, how they're usually used, and you can see the combinations here. I haven't mentioned ribavirin yet. It's a drug that has activity, but it's not 100% sure how it operates, but it is effective. It's just not quite as potent as these uh, so-called uh, direct-acting agents, but yet with the addition of ribavirin in certain cases, you can uh, improve the outcome depending on the genotype and the uh, stage of cirrhosis. And we'll talk about that as the day goes on. Um, the kinetics, because it's a rapidly viral uh, rapidly producing virus to 100 billion to a trillion viruses a day, the kinetics are fast. You stop the replication, the viral load plummets very quickly. And you can go from 
a couple million copies to undetectable and really as quick as 10 days to 14 days. That doesn't happen all the time, but it can be that quick. Uh, it's more likely two to four weeks you will go to undetectable. And then it stays undetectable through the rest of therapy. You stop therapy, uh, let's say at 12 weeks, uh, and then you monitor for another three months or another 12 weeks. And at that point in time, 12 weeks after the stop of therapy, 12 weeks after EOT or end of therapy, you check a viral load, and if you do not detect virus anymore, you can, that equates to uh, sustained virologic response, and we equate that with cure. This is a historic um, sort of slide that's basically showing interferon-type responses. And notice the difference. Today, we're using somewhere between 8 and 12 weeks, um, and that's mostly it, sometimes out to 16 sometimes out to 24 uncommonly, but rarely any longer than that unless somebody has really bad cirrhosis and they're pre-transplant. Um, so what you typically see is this rapid response is sustained, and that's an SVR. But it, historically, those folks who were on interferon and didn't have hardly any budge at all in their viral load, they were called null responders. And, with, and when you used another interferon regimen, they hardly ever responded again, even when some of the direct-acting agents were added to interferon. Here it doesn't seem to matter as much. If somebody was a previous null responder, they can have cure in a very high proportion, um, even if they're a prior null responder to interferon. The current treatments, we've already gone over them some. What I'm trying to show here is that this is uh, work that was shown at uh, EASL, one of the liver meeting in, in Europe, uh, a couple years ago, looking at some of the phosphovir-containing regimens and combining the data from these different things and looking at who will do poorly with phosphovir-based regimens. And again, here, these are kind of earlier regimens, so soft riba we don't hardly use anymore, maybe in genotype 2, uh, but maybe not recommended, as, as Dr. Nagy will talk about. PEG, riba, sofosfavir, again. But when you look at this, this is what was predictive by univariate analysis. And by multivariable analysis, Looking at these types of regimens, um, treatment experience being male, uh, higher weight, the so-called IL-28B uh, non-CC, that's a genotypic marker for response, but it's mostly, if not exclusively now, for interferon-based regimens. Cirrhosis reduced the likelihood of success in a higher viral load. The, the point I'm trying to make here is that when multiple of these different factors are present at the same time. Based on these types of regimens, the more factors you have, the lower likelihood there is of an SVR. Now, again, with all DAA regimens, not using interferon, not using ribavirin, better drugs, this sort of starts to go out the window. But this is from a historical perspective. The take-home point, I think, is that when you have somebody who has, for example, we might not be checking IL-28B, but a treatment experienced person who's male and overweight and has cirrhosis and a high viral load, those folks you want to watch even more carefully uh, as you're treating even with DAA agents. Again, this is just a listing of all the medicines. The question that comes up a lot is, okay, uh, great. Was it all mean, Basil, if you saw Austin Powers, right? What does it all mean, Basil? And uh, well, let's talk about it. Somebody gets to an SVR cure, what does it mean? Well, it's good news. So here's a, here's a bunch of people that have had SVRs, and typically they remain virus-free because the virus is gone. Now, what's important, especially for those who treat HIV patients who are co-infected, they can get reinfected. 
through, usually through sexual exposure. And this has been happening. You know it because sometimes they come back in with a new spike in, in uh, liver enzymes. You check for hepatitis C, and boom, there's a virus present again at high numbers. Sometimes it's a different genotype. Sometimes it has a different pattern completely. So you can get reinfected. I think it's less likely when somebody's already had an immune response. I think it's somewhat protective, but it's not obviously completely protective. But assuming no further exposures, a cure is a cure. This is probably the important take-home point, though. And that is that once someone has an SVR, compared to no treatment at all in the, in the dark line um, here, Somebody who has an SVR over time in terms of overall survival does very, very well. And in in particular, I think this is really key. Those without an SVR in terms of over time developing hepatocellular carcinoma, much, much higher risk than here. But what's really important here is that, yes, dramatic decrease, but it still can happen. So we're not out of the woods, as Dr. Sherman is going to talk to us about in the next lecture, you have somebody with cirrhosis, they're at risk for hepatocellular carcinoma untreated, right? You treat them, great, they're cured, wonderful. And their risk of hepatocellular carcinoma drops precipitously, but it does not go to zero. So we still have to follow them every six months or so with an ultrasound. That's a very important point. But I think the a equally big point is, look at this, you can have a, a, a protection against development of liver failure with an SVR. And in some cases, you actually start to see improvement. People that are borderline on the transplant list with a higher MELD score, say 20, that can start to drift back down to where they may not require a transplant or don't require a transplant. And that's really good news. Um, more of the same, this is the effect of SVR on the risk of liver transplant, and this is basically what I just told you, that uh, the green is with an SVR, the red is without, and you, can, you don't need to be a statistician to see there's differences here. And so it's good to cure. Okay, I think I got us mostly back on time. Um, I'll stop there and just see if there are any questions that you have before we move on. Just, yeah, just shout them out, and I'll repeat. Please. Um, in the patients that have these multiple predictors of relapse, would you ever consider treating them for longer or adding ribavirin? Yeah, so the question is for those who have multiple risk factors, say all the bad things. Uh, sure, I think that's the point, especially someone who's got cirrhosis. But there are data that help guide us specifically to the length of therapy based on a particular DAA regimen. We're going to talk about that as the day goes on. But it's still remarkable that if you follow that, even with all those factors, um, say 16 weeks of a certain X and Y DAA with ribavirin, uh, the cure rates are still pushing over 90% in a lot of the cases. And so it's just something to be aware of. Can't hear what? Oh, oh sorry. Yeah. Um, on slide 35, when you talked about the risk for um, HCC after SVR, was that just among cirrhotics? Or yes. Okay, so the question is, uh, is the risk of hepatocellular carcinoma uh, among cirrhotics only? In the case of hepatitis C, that is correct, as a rule of thumb. For hepatitis B, it's different. And Dr. Sherman will talk to us about hepatocellular carcinoma in, in the next talk. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, if they get reinfected with the same genotype, mm-hmm. if the body doesn't have the uh, 
the ability to protect. Yeah. Yeah, so the question is, um, someone has had hepatitis C, you cure them. That means that by definition, it's better than a vaccine, right? They have the real thing, but you got rid of it. So the immune system should remember, aha, I've seen genotype 1A. I should be able to protect against that. Unfortunately, the answer is no. They can, I mean, or unfortunately, the answer is that they can be reinfected with the same genotype. And you kind of scratch your head and go, well, how can that be? And it just is. Now, I think we could debate about the likelihood of an infection among someone who's never had hepatitis C versus those who, who've had it before and say that there's probably some degree of protection or there may be some improved clearance in that first initial phase after acute going to establishment of chronic. We could argue that, but to my knowledge, has not been studied because it's really hard to capture people in acute infection. Okay, well, let me reset the computer, and as I'm doing that, I'm going to introduce our next speaker, who's Dr. Ken Sherman, who is um, a professor of hepatology and medicine at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, Dr. Sherman is um, really just one of the world leaders in all things liver, uh, but in particular, um, he's done some of the pioneering work in treatment of hepatitis B and hepatitis C. And what he does really well and what he's going to do today for us is kind of review uh, hepatology for the non-hepatologist, which, as you notice, if you paid attention to the very small print on that first slide or one of the early slides when I polled us, there were no hepatologists in the audience. So that's every one of us except for him is a, is a non-hepatologist. So, Ken, welcome, and uh, look forward to your talk. Thank you, Mike.